Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast. Look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining as always, my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm well. Oh, oh, how nice it is here. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, I've, 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 um, I'm just about to, to, to start a new shampoo. Um, cause I'm, I, I was saw like the bottle in the, this is like how exciting my life is. I saw the bottle yeah. in the supermarket and it said damage. And I was like, maybe my hair is damaged. Like, like, like Jared, like Leto. Jared Leto's Joker. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so yeah, we'll soon find out. Um, can't, can't do any harm. Certainly. Yeah, it's like when you discover that Axe, bo- so that Lynx body spray is called Axe in the States, because that's obviously much more manly. Or when, like, discovering that your friend uses Lynx body spray. Is <laughs> we all went through a phase of that at some point in our lives, I'm sure. And listeners, you can hear the first guest there, this week's first special guest, because we have a very special episode discussing a new entry on the 250. That's right, a hot new Swedish director, Mr. Ingmar Bergman, has entered the list with a new film that is Autumn Sonata, which was released in 1978, and has entered the list for the first time. And to help us discuss it, we have two fantastic guests. First of all, the wonderful Mr. Phil Bagnell. How are you, Phil? Uh, I'm good. I don't know if I'd describe myself as wonderful, but I'll take it. You are are wonderful, Phil. Oh, yeah. bless your heart. Wonderful is what we call thank, you. Thank you. Behind your back. That. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have a pun that works just as well, so we'll say that Ronan is spectacular. Well, the spectacular Ronan Doyle is joining us for this conversation. How are you, Ronan? I'll take spectacular. Spectacular will do me very well. Thank you. <laughs> Perfect. So, yes. So, um, Autumn Sonata, which is one of the later movies in terms of Bergman's career, um, obviously arrived at a very interesting point in his life. We talked a bit in the podcast before about the interesting relationship that Sweden had with Bergman, including at one point arresting him and investigating him for failure to pay his taxes. Now, this turned out to be pure fluff. He was apparently released within five hours of the arrest, but it left kind of a strain on his relationship with his home country. He migrated. He moved abroad. And he, a lot of his later work kind of bristled with that kind of anger and passion that he felt towards. And Autumn Sonata's Autumn Sonata Autumn Sonata, Autumn Sonata <laughs> This is going to be fun every yeah. time he tries to say it now. Try the yeah. Swedish, it'll be much more fun. No, I'm okay. Thank you very much. Onschlimet. Um, <laughs> yeah. oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, but yes, Autumn Sonata uh, is one of his later works. Um, you but say it's obviously- Sonata, I say Sonata. Yeah. Uh, let's work the whole thing off. But yes, is is one of those films that he worked on, uh, famously shot in Norway using a largely Norwegian cast with American and British money, including money from producer uh, Sir Lou Grade, of all things as well. Ah, uh, God bless Lou Grade, him and his insanities. <laughs> would, ironically enough, it took the Titanic to sink him. But anyway. <laughs> um, but yes, so Autumn Sonata, one of the late works in the career of Ingmar Bergman, and notably, you know, as I've come to call it, it is A Few Bergmen. Ah, ah, ah. Because it marks the first collaboration of Sweden's two great Bergman exports, Ingrid and Ingmar Bergman. And for added, um, for added complexity there, listeners or film watchers may have noted that at the time, I believe, uh, Ingmar Bergman was married to a separate Ingrid Bergman, who also shares a credit on the film for working in administration. So I'm sure that wasn't at all complex in terms of working on the set. But before we jump into was that... Was she Bergman before she married him? <laughs> 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 to further confuse things? <laughs> to make things even more complicated. But before we jump into conversation, um, Phil and Ronan, 
Do you guys remember the first time that you saw Autumn Sonata and what your kind of first reactions to it were? So, Phil, do you remember the first time that you saw it? I do. Um, this isn't the first Bergman I've been on here to discuss. We did Seventh Seal before, um, earlier this year, actually. Or, well, we're in 2021 now. God, how time flies. Anyway, uh, when we did Seventh Seal, I said that I saw that back in my college days and, you know, just lodging in the memory from therein. It's only when I revisited Autumn Sonata for this that I realised I'd actually watched this back around the same time. And it hadn't quite lodged in the memory the same way. Like, Autumn Sonata, it's a, it's a chamber piece. And as such, it perhaps lacks the arresting imagery of the most famous Bergman works. So, Persona, Seven Seal. Um, but... That aside, I found it, on this rewatch at least, to be uh, just as arresting and just as emotionally uh, devastating as any of his other works. Um, I'm a bit confused as to how it's just entered the list all of a sudden. And uh, and, uh, just by the way, uh, not to accuse the 250 of bandwagoning, a new entry, but totally bandwagoning. Well, no, I mean, we do. That's literally what the, this just in is for, that we have an entire section of the show dedicated I thought, to it. I thought this just in was for, like, you know, brand new movies. We, this is a brand new movie to the 250. Are we going to, I mean, are we going to say that we've, we've always been doing this just in <laughs> and just insert them all into our back catalog? Uh, I mean, uh, we, yeah, yeah, like, like maybe our most popular episodes will be our old episodes because 2020 2020 and possibly now 2021 will be the year of 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 back back catalogs and um people don't realize that we're still recording podcasts so they're listening to the old (laughs) ones um well i mean Andrew, you, like, I mean, I'm not sure if you're aware of, like, what our most popular podcasts were from I last year. I saw your year. top ten. I saw your yeah. top ten. Do you know what? Do, do it, um, uh, do it, do it, do it, there was some uh, where it was just the two of us. There do, was do, indeed. Do, do, there was a few with Graham, wasn't there? There was um, indeed. Yeah. But everybody loves Graham. That's yeah. not a surprise. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he's unaccountably popular. No, sorry. <laughs> I, I, wow. I, I, wow. I love Graham. Oh. I love him. <laughs> no, no I, I, should res- I should reserve that for when he's here. Uh, yeah. but, but, oh, that'll uh, make it all so much better. No, the kind-hearted jostling. Um, Graham, Like I, when you tried to get Graham cancelled on our soul <laughs> podcast. It's my birth. Hey, you tried to get him cancelled. Yeah, you can't you're, cancel him. He's too nice. You're, you're still talking about about that. That was two weeks ago. <laughs> fair, fair point. <laughs> Excuse me, if there's anyone guest on this podcast who probably deserves cancellation, it's me. Oh, don't worry, we're going to get to you, Phil. Um, <laughs> but no, all bring joking. It. The cancel all, Bring it, you simps. All joke, okay, all joke, that escalated very quickly. All joking aside, what I was going to make there before Andrew turned it into an excuse to attack one of our great recurring no, guests. I lo- <laughs> just want to go on record, I love Graham. If if you think that I said something, it's been edited that way. Clearly. Uh, um, yeah. but before Andrew jumped in on that, which I do appreciate you jumping in on that, the point I was going to make was our third most popular podcast last year was The Circus. The This Just In episode covering the Charles. Charlie Chaplin film from 1920, I want to say six, no, 28, right? Anyway, sometime around then, 
Uh, what am I doing, researching this now? But yeah, so, you know, we kind of figured that, you know, covering a Bergman movie, and it's always a good excuse to cover a Bergman movie. And to be frank, it was also a good excuse to have both Phil and Ronan on. Um, and we'll probably talk a little bit in a moment about why maybe Autumn Sonata is a sudden new entry on the list. But what about yourself, Ronan? Do you remember the first time that you saw it and what your reaction to it was? I do. So I was I was pretty lucky around the time, I can't remember exactly when, probably around the time I was 16, 17. Film Ford did a large-scale retrospective of Bergman. Um, most of it was well to the early hours of the, of the morning um, so there were a lot of them that I saw at 2, 3 o'clock uh, and this was one of them I think there were about 15 films in that season I'd seen maybe one or two of his before so it took me from you know somebody with no, not much exposure at all to um, somebody who'd seen all of the, the kind of key works of Bergman um, and this one did stand out quite a bit actually in memory um, this was my first time coming back to it since so it's been Christmas possibly as, as many as 15 years at this point. Um, but there, there were a lot of things that uh, clung to memory. I think what Phil says about it being a chamber piece that might lack some of the um, intensity of imagery, it kind of compensates for that by having an intensity of emotion. Like Bergman always has that, but this one particularly, you don't get to pull back. You don't get to get out of this dynamic between these two women. And it's uh, it's incredibly intense and very uncomfortable in a very pleasant way, I found and would you go so far as to say that that film four season turned you into a Berg fan? I would never do such a thing. <laughs> okay. All right. That's a fair point, and we respect your position on it. Um, but yeah. Darren, would you like to say that you're a Berg fan? I would indeed, but it's too late. I've already used the pun. Um, but no. Uh, what To bring it back to what kind of Phil asked there, which is the question of why Autumn Sonata and why now in terms of making the list. This is something I kind of think about a lot in terms of why movies come in when they do. And I think Andrew's onto something in the sense of there was no movies in 2020. So <laughs> everybody just watched the back catalog and dug into it. There was a recent restoration of Autumn Sonata uh, released in 2017, which may have garnered some international attention as well. Um, and, you know, there's also the fact that, like, he was, Bergman was one of the quarantine filmmakers. His name tended to pop up on lists quite repeatedly in places like the New York Times or IndieWire in terms of people getting recommendations for uh, directors whose back catalogs might possibly help you get through quarantine, even though I'm not entirely sure that the kind of claustrophobic intensity of an Ingmar Bergman It was Bergman either film. this or The Seven Seal, and as we discussed on that podcast, I mean, if ever there was a pitch-perfect movie for quarantine... <laughs> Aside from yeah. Birdemic, like we we also did Birdemic, <laughs> like it was the, one of the first the great ones one we did. Twofer. Yeah, <laughs> um, um, I mean. What uh, movie speaks to the current moment more than that? But I mean, there is also the fact... This is a lockdown movie. Um, oh, yeah. Like, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's people trapped together in a tight yeah. space arguing with each other. It's perfect. Yeah. So I suspect that may play to pace as well. And also the fact that it was a movie that was arguably uh, ripe for reconsideration in terms of Bergman's filmography. Because um, when it premiered uh, back in 1978, reviews kind of went from run the gamut from indifferent to mildly positive. Um, so, for example, in the New York Times, uh, Robert E. Lauder <laughs> noted gamut. that, you know, <clears throat> massive, massive gap between those two. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so like Robert E. Lauder in the New York Times noted that Bergman was accused by critics of treading water, of replaying old themes and has been implicitly encouraged to move on to new subjects. Uh, Gary Arnold in the Washington Post um, suggested that Bergman managed to strike a new note of accusatory self-pity. While at worst, this movie sounds like the ideal ideal entertainment for that guy who recently sued his parents on grounds of mental cruelty. Even 
Bergman scholar and superfan Woody Allen would go on to classify it as one of Bergman's less successful experiments in his 1988 review of Through a Life Darkly, Bergman's kind of biography. Uh, Bergman himself would kind of reap, would kind of like heap heavily upon it and say that, you know, he felt that uh, he'd begun to repeat himself. You know, I've never been able to appreciate Louis Bonnell, he would say, by way of explaining the failure of Autumn Sonata. I discovered at an early age that it's possible to fabricate ingenious tricks, which he elevated to a special kind of genius, particular to him, and which he repeated and varied. He always received applause. Bonnell always made Bonnell films. So the time has come for me to look in the mirror and ask, where are we going? Has Bergman begun to make Bergman films? Is this Bergman speaking? This is Bergman speaking himself about his uh, himself in the third person. It's, I yeah, find it's good that you don't have to ask him questions. That he just gives like soliloquies to camera, <laughs> and, um, like by means I, of exposition. <laughs> I, well, I mean, we'll, we'll come back to like Bergman's characterization, uh, like because I think that like um, Ingrid Bergman, when she was reading the script, was like, "People don't talk like that." And Ingmar Bergman was like, "I beg to differ." Thank you very much. Um, it's like, have you never seen one of his films before? <laughs> uh, people. It, if any critics were saying that, you know, this is more of the same, just his usual brand of uh, of grim introspection. I'm sorry, but people that uh, it, with intense emotionality in a in a Bergman film, you know, criticizing him for that. That's like criticizing a Quentin Tarantino movie for having violence on women's feet. But to, to just finish, I'll just finish the quote because I got one line from the sorry, end there before sorry, Andrew kind of put in there. Uh, <laughs> so close. But, like, so close to finishing. Because like it, it's the little cherry on top because this is, this is Bergman talking about himself in the third person. Has Bergman begun to make Bergman films? I find that Olam Sonata is an annoying example, um, which is kind of amazing when you trash your own film for being too much like all your other films. Um, everybody else was doing it, we well, might as well. Kind of heap on the top there. Uh, it's also worth noting that like up until around about 2000, 2002, when Criterion released an edition of it, it was only sporadically available on uh, VHS and, and DVD and Laserdisc and other media as well. So it was not as publicly accessible as his kind of core work, like say Wild Strawberries, uh, like The Virgin Spring, um, like obviously The Seventh Seal, which we talked about. Even Winter's Light was more accessible um, in terms of kind of his work as well. So like that's arguably the reason and why the film probably perhaps didn't have the same kind of like penetration um, as his other films, although it did do reasonably well. Um, it did not flop outright uh, like the other films that he made around it, um, such as The Marionettes, I believe was one of them. From those. The Life of the Marionettes. And the, the Life of the Marionettes and The Serpent's Egg, which I believe, and my our two Burman scholars can correct me if I'm wrong, The Serpent's Egg was the first movie that he made in English, if I remember correctly, right? Uh, and it also flopped. Um, Am I one well, of the... <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at me. Uh, and Andrew, what about yourself? Had you seen Autumn Sonata before? Do you know I actually hadn't? Um, <laughs> um, uh, no, I hadn't, and um, and I'll, I'll I'll say I'm glad I did, yeah. um, and I feel like I'll come back to it, um, oh, just cool. to tease. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, and I want to want to ask this actually to to Phil and to Ronan before we can jump into the discussion. Like in terms of your own assessment of it, 
what do you think in terms of it being kind of forgotten or overlooked or reappraised? Do you see it as a film? Do you see any of that accusation of kind of of uh, Bergman repeating himself? Do you do you understand maybe why it was passed over and maybe why it's something that people come back to? Like in terms of your own watch of the film, having watched it when you were younger and having watched it for this podcast. So Ronan, what about yourself? Do you think there, can you understand why maybe it wasn't appreciated before and why it may be found an audience now. In a sense, I can see these complaints of, you know, it's Bergman repeating Bergman. But by the way, I think it's incredibly ironic that Woody Allen would say that considering he imitated Bergman for half his career. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a complaint you can really make there, Woody. Um, I do think there's there's a lot of distinguishing factors here. Um, I don't know if I necessarily would have picked it out. Like, it's interesting that uh, the last time I saw it, I saw it in a big bunch with 15 different films. And it always uh, stuck out with a clear identity of its own for me. I think part of that is okay. the fact that it's shot in color, which is partly unusual for Bergman. The majority of his um, well-regarded great works are in black and white. Um, and he does some interesting things here with color. But one of the things that makes it a bit different for me is um, the focus it has. So it singularly focuses in on this one relationship, the mother-daughter relationship, that does crop up in other Bergman films, but never with this degree of focus and fury, you could almost say, from, from both sides, that sort of intensity. Um, it's also, um, the, from the idea of him repeating himself, it's... His career is really interesting in the way that he tended to leap back and forth between film and theater. Um, he's in that kind of great uh, theatrical tradition of um, Northern European artists who are cold and distant and emotional, etc. Um, but I think there's something really interesting happening here that makes it a particularly fascinating film in his filmography for me of how he makes a film that's particularly stagey in a sense. Um, everything about the way it's framed even there are a couple of shots through doors that look like you're looking onto a stage but he really uses what you can do differently with cinema particularly for me in Ingrid Bergman's reaction shots you don't get that in the theatre from the cheap seats you can't see every wrinkle of her eye and she's doing a ton here so I think um, I might not have picked up all of that the last time and I really enjoyed doing it this time um, there's there's something different there that I haven't seen in most of his other films. Yeah, um, we'll probably come back to the theatrical aspect in the spoiler zone, but it's worth noting that like Ingrid herself made the point that because of certain scandals in her personal life, which again we'll probably talk to when we talk about the substance of the film, she had moved away from doing big Hollywood productions, she'd moved away from doing big films, and she moved towards doing theatre. And she was quite surprised when she worked with Bergman, having read the script and having had the same reaction you did, which is, this seems like a theatrical piece in terms of a limited cast, a set location, and a handful of scenes and kind of organized around a big duologue centerpiece um and i hope none that counts as spoilers for an ingmar bergman film from 1978 but she did say that she was stunned at like how often he would press the camera in close to her and how there was a big tension on the set between the two of them about her style of acting where he insisted that she was stuck in the 1940s in terms of how she was performing and in her yeah uh, imagine <laughs> saying that ingmar bergman <laughs> yeah. how did he really feel <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh no no it, we'll, we'll talk in the yeah there's some some choice words between the two um and their their dueling autobiographies are fascinating reads when it comes to talking about this film dueling uh, autobiographies i, I feel yeah. like that's a music cue that's just waiting to be recomposed are the people you know all monsters um yes that sort of stuff but um <laughs> Well done, Dan. I'll let you... <laughs> no, genuine. That was quick. Um, <laughs> Improv, that was a... ladies and gentlemen. This is a treat and a half. That was an actual quote from one of their one of their biographies on the subject of the film. But um, 
but she yeah he basically said she's stuck in the 1940s her response was well I was learning how to act in intense close-up because it's a very different style of acting and it requires a very different style of performance um <laughs> what about just, I just find that so <laughs> strange like yeah that's where her career that that was that's what most people knew her for like the idea that she could still be trapped in that kind of mode well you know that's it's not unreasonable people you know people remember her from certain roles you know if he wants to say that to her face he just she just had to turn around and say casablanca bitch is he one of these is ingmar bergman one of these horrible people who who will like sacrifice somebody for the sake of art you know like 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 (laughs) i want a performance out of you so i'm going to make you feel a certain way whether you want to or not or or is or is that or is that just kind of the Hitchcockian um, vision of actors as cattle. Hmm. He he famously on the on the set of the Seventh Seal he famously made Death cry. <laughs> oh really? <laughs> I'd believe anybody could. It'd be Bergman and not the actor, the actual concept. Um, <laughs> no, I mean the thing is here actually. To be fair, to be fair to, to Bergman, uh, both of his actors here, uh, Liv Ullman and Ingrid Bergman, both said that they enjoyed working with him greatly. And, and Ingrid in particular said that he was very prone to listen to her. He would actually listen to what she had to say, uh, which was not a response that she was used to getting from directors. And, you know, he would, if she had a good idea, he would take it on board. Um, and he was notably very quiet. He did say himself that when it came to dealing with Ingrid, um, he tried being gentle, but there were times where he had to shout at her. Um, in order to get the intensity of the emotion that he wanted out of her. But it was very much the exception rather than the rule. Uh, I'm sure that's of... an occurrence that happens on plenty of movies. That's... Yeah, and I mean, again, she, compared to, say, her working with Hitchcock, for example, this was a dream by her own uh, by her own kind of mind. But again, you, you get a sense when you read the biographies that things were tense on set between them. Uh, but what about yourself, Phil? Do you kind of see why, why maybe this was overlooked and, and why maybe it's a film that people seem to have come back to? Um, I... I can see why, funny enough, I think the reason that it was overlooked at the time and the reason that people are coming back to it now are one and the same, in that they're pure Bergman. You know, the this is coming on the after a number of films that either were uh, covered a lot of similar ground, you know, heightened emotionality and so forth. Um and, you know, when people saw it they thought, oh, he's just doing like cries and whispers again or something like that. Uh, but at the same time, if people are, uh, you know, re-exploring Bergman now and they come along to this and uh, they find a lot of his themes and a lot of his methods encapsulated in it quite nicely. So, yeah, it it was re- it was maybe not as well accepted because it was prototypical Bergman. And now it is because it's prototypical Bergman. Yeah. All right, then. With that in mind, then we'll probably segue into the spore zone, but three questions to get us started. So, Phil, first question. Do you think that Autumn Sonata is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Um, I'm going to say no. Um, Bergman has a few films on the list already, and the ones that are there are films I tend to... Pre- that are there already. They're the ones I, they're ones I tend to prefer. So, Persona, Seven Seal, Wild Strawberries. So, it's very good... Um, I recommend it to anybody who wants to dive into Bergman, but one of the greatest now. All right. And what about yourself, Ronan? Yeah, I'd echo that sentiment from Phil. Um, I think there are a handful of Bergman that are in a higher placement and deserve to be, um, but it is, it is very, very good. All right. 
Um, so this isn't quite top tier Bergman in terms of his work. Um, so obviously, would you agree with Phil in terms of the three that are on there ahead of it? So like The Seventh Seal, Wild Strawberries and Persona. And are there other films even beyond that that you rank higher? Yeah, Winter Light for, all, for me has always been the, the main Bergman one. It's um, my it's, it's in my personal top five of all time. It's, wow. it's the Bergman for me. Um, it It is bleak in the best kind of ways. Um, but it's, this is probably upper middle tier, let's say. <laughs> I, I love, by the way, that we've had Ronan on uh, quite re- a, a bit quite recently, and they both consisted of Ronan saying, this isn't like that other movie, which is in my top five movies of all time. So, you know, they're kind what of... Was- what was the, the other one? The other one was in the midst of um, the, the movie from 1990... Uh, very gypsies? similar to ta- very similar to Time of the Gypsies, the Los Angeles Times. Oh, 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 Landscape in the Mist. Oh, Godfather Part Three. Landscape. Yeah. What? <laughs> 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 no, the movie that the Los Angeles Times deemed to be better than Godfather Part Three. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> Just about <laughs> narrowly edging it out. Sorry, um, Landscape sorry. in the Mist. You're right. Landscape in the Mist. Yeah. Landscape so- in the Mist. Sorry, I think I talked over it. I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, just in case listeners were worried that it was Godfather Part 3. Not that we'd have any problem with that. should be worried. (laughs) And Andrew, what about yourself? Um, Do you think that Autumn Sonata belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? I think it needed more Noki rolling. Um, No, um... I do, I do. Like, I'd, 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 if, if, kind of, um, on the same sort of, um, format... As as uh, Phil and Ronan, I would say I preferred this to Wild Strawberries. Anyway, don't know about Persona. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it, I, I I know. I, I would find it difficult to say that much is better than the Seventh the Seal, Seal. But um, like many movies at all <laughs> Let alone, many things in general yeah 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 yeah. or yeah things i guess um but yeah i i kind i kind of feel like um as somebody as somebody who's not um a an aficionado of um bergman but who has seen some bergman because of this podcast um i would i would want this to be on to 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 be on the list because i was blown away like um I, I i just thought this movie was incredibly profound and uh beautiful and i i guess i may, maybe kind of get why perhaps it it wasn't appreciated or 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 felt a bit a bit much you kind of do have to go with it a little bit um and it's not kind of um it's not an easy movie um but yeah, it, it it's it it is beautiful, and um, even I think Rona mentioned like the use of uh, color um, is um, is something that 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 Bergman kind of has here to to, to great effect. Yeah, so I, I won't say too much more. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they I I I do think it should be under two fifty. Yeah. I'm glad it I is. Mean- yeah, I am also glad that it is because it kind of like provided me with an excuse to go back and watch it because we're at the stage of the year where the only thing I watch is for a podcast and award consideration. So I'm really glad that this gave me the excuse to watch it. Um, in terms of there being enough Bergman on the list, maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but I quite like there being more world cinema on there, even if again, it's Curacao and Bergman. It's what our almost guest on this, Jay Coyle, would have described as the starter pack of world cinema, but I do like that it's there. <laughs> 
Um, and I do, I, you know, I mean, even beyond that, I kind of like the idea of there being stagey films, or at least a couple of stagey films on there. I have a huge fondness for certain films that seem theoretically stagey, but are very much films of themselves, as Ronan Boy, pointed out. Boys in the Band, was that one of them? Did Boys in the Band recently, for example, One Night in Miami, even Doubt going back to like 2008, I think Doubt was, or maybe it was 2012. Even Fences, which, you know, I had some problems with, but I quite liked in terms of kind of staging um, a play in terms of putting it on screen. We did 12 Angry Men as well, didn't we? Where, yeah, where we did. There was, wasn't it... There, wasn't it the case that it didn't even come from a play? No, no, it didn't. It started out on television. It was a television like, play. What? <laughs> how, how was this not a play? Um, is the question watching it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I kind of I have a fondness for that sort of drama. And I think that this is a great example of it because as Ronan pointed out, it is shot like a film. Um, it very much uses the language of cinema. Bergman is a cinematic director and it looks gorgeous as a result. So I can kind of see it being on there for that reason. So I... What I, you know, wouldn't make a strong argument for it, I wouldn't make an argument against it, uh, Darren says, hedging his bets. Um, all right, then. And Phil, would it be on your own personal 250? Um, I don't think so. No, I don't think so, because you mentioned you have a fondness for certain films that feel stage-bound, I suppose. I have a... Uh, I don't, personally. Um, and I would say anybody who isn't in tune with that that kind of filmmaking, they're going to be very frustrated by this. Um, even though the emotionality comes thick and fast, it's still, it, it's going to be frustrating to uh, enough audiences that I couldn't recommend it out of hand. But that said, I mean, it's still such a rich film that I'll still gladly recommend it to most people. But yeah, I, I don't think I would. Um, that and I hate saying that because it sounds like even though I'm not putting it on a list of the 250 greatest films I've ever seen, it still feels like I'm excluding it for, you know, out of sheer churlishness or something like that. But no, I'm I'm just gonna I'm gonna stick with my no. You have seen a lot of movies, Phil. Even though you've stopped watching new ones, you have seen a lot of movies. It's not that I've stopped. It's just they've stopped being good. Potato, it potato. Stinks. So next. Hey, yes, Miss. Yes, Mister Quinn. Everything stinks. Sonado, sonado. Um, all right then. And Ronan, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal two fifty? Probably doesn't make the cut, but it wouldn't be far hovering off the margins. All right. Do you have an actual list? So are we no. talking like five hundred? Are we talking a thousand? No. Okay. I did years ago, maybe twenty twelve. I made a, a top hundred list and updated it two or three years further down the line. Um, so we are, what, six, seven years out of date on that updated one, and I just could not face the task of doing another one. It would, okay. it, it would hurt. Doesn't it, it feel like a real act of egoism when you do that? Because I've been there. It's <laughs> right. like, you just think, ooh, you, Who cares? you think back about now. Well, exactly. Like, it's it's like, I found when, like, whenever I, I think when, like, Bebo or Facebook or something started, there was, like, a, it must have been Bebo, there, 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 there was some sort of a, uh, a plug-in or part of it, or, like, a, like, a widget where you would, um, you know, rate movies, and... I did that, and then I found that, like, after a certain point, you don't really progress with it, because you're thinking, like, oh, yeah, that's really good, but that, like, but that's so <laughs> But it is really good in one other film that's also really good. Then, like, I can't give them all, all of these ones five stars. If this one is a five star and it's, 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 it's so much better than these other ones, then I need to bump <laughs> these other ones down, you know? 
kind of Bebo walked so Letterbox D could run. <laughs> equally worthless. Wow. Okay. All right. I was just going to say that listeners can just assume that they look at Ronan's 2015 list, bump everything down one place, and put Avengers Endgame at the top, and that's just where it needs to be right now. Right? I thought that was your list. That is that is a wild <laughs> twist. Uh, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal 250? Um, yeah, yeah, it would. It would. Um, I, I, I definitely put this on my on my top two fifty. I think, and that's kind a very strong it. from a first yeah, watch. Like no, like like we we. I think there there's not that many films from the like from the seventeen years we've been doing this podcast. Like the it's give or take. It, yeah, yeah. It's 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 not it it it's not that often that the, that the, that there's something that I really want to kind of have on on the short list of 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 the 250 you know but this would be there definitely definitely it was so um uh powerful i i don't know i i it maybe maybe may maybe it, it belongs more on my list than on the list because i think there's there's a lot in this movie that will kind of um uh not not that not not that there's any real similarity between my my myself and, and Ava. Are you a Charlotte but, or an Eva? Yeah, no, that's yeah, the yeah. Are are necessarily between any of the characters, but it just felt so true. Um, I feel like, um, and and it felt very like, like, I I I, I couldn't get over how. Um, he was able to show Charlotte and somehow, I guess not everyone will agree, but somehow I felt some sort of sympathy for her. And I think that's a very difficult thing to do. Um, but it wouldn't like, but you have to, um, because I, I think, I think if you, if, if you know, anyway, yeah, no, I, 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 I found it very touching and true and, um, like, profound as i've all as i've already said there is a lot of talking in it which i kind of like in movies but there's also there are there are also kind of quiet moments as you say with the with the um with it where 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 they have these kind of close-ups where you just can't look away really because if you're if you're rec- if if you're watching it for a film podcast you might want to write notes but you just have to find you just have to stare at the screen like to 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 catch every expression they make it's wonderful yeah no it would would be on my list and i feel really bad that i'm following andrew because i go with a maybe which is quite strong for me <laughs> on a first time watch to be fair but seems less strong after andrew's kind of recommendation there but again this is the kind of movie that i i genuinely really like um it's a movie that i've used soft spot for and the performances are amazing the script is is fantastic and the way in which the movie builds and the way in which it's structured is quite intricate and clever as well and i, I really 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 liked it um all right then and then final question to take us into the spore zone phil if listeners have not seen autumn sonata and bearing in mind for listeners in the states it is available on the criterion collection channel um you can also order it on dvd and blu-ray now um it is not available from bfi despite what my research had suggested so apologies to andrew for that no Uh, uh, i I think it said currently unavailable now with with bfi i don't know what that means (laughs) (laughs) Um, i don't know is it coming back (laughs) Um, Uh, 
that service was unexpectedly interrupted by Brexit. We can't. Im- we can no longer import these Swedish art house films um, yeah, anymore. It's so tantalizing. Um, yeah, it's kind you look of currently at this, just... unavailable. Is it available later today? <laughs> like, yeah. Should I come back in a moment? Yeah. Um, All these shots of empty art house video store shelves <laughs> as like wanderers just come in looking for a Bergman to see them through the winter. Uh, but Phil, would you recommend that listeners watch um, the moon, uh, the autumn sonata? Yes, um, like a lot of Bergman, it's affecting, it's beautifully acted, and it's brief. It's only about 90, 92 minutes, yeah. so go for it. Yeah, and Ronan? Yeah, he really knew how to keep the uh, the runtimes appropriate, didn't he? There's, there's very rarely any flab uh, in Bergman films. True. I mean, I mean, you say that, right? But I mean, keep in mind that the two movies from Bergman that have dropped off the list are Fanny and Alexander, which admittedly did begin life as a, as a miniseries, but is three hours and eight minutes long, or Scenes from a Marriage, which is four hours and 45 minutes long. You, know, Aaron, I, I, you, you and I cannot <laughs> um, <laughs> no, criticize anyone for, for, particularly for, not Ingmar for Bergman. making things that are long. Unnecessarily um, and uncomfortably long, yeah. The, yeah, that, that's the um, un, unnecessarily and uncomfortably long Darren Mooney. <laughs> two, two out of well over 50 ain't bad. Yeah. yeah. Oh, or sorry, nine, it's Darren unnecessarily long uh, <laughs> uh, Mooney. It goes, in, it goes in between your first and last name, isn't it? Th- that, thank you, Andrew. That's, a, that's, an, that's not a nickname I think is objection necessarily. <laughs> um, uh, all right. Sorry sorry for getting you off there, Odin. Sorry, I, I, I do, do beg go, your pardon. Uh, no, no, but I mean, I kind of, I started it to be fair, but I was observing that, you know, yes, yes, he did, he did keep it tight a lot of the time. I mean, this is 93 minutes. So I think Persona's 92 minutes and that's great and deserves a lot of commendation. But I feel like, you know, you occasionally need to acknowledge the four hour and 32 minute elephant in the room That's... we all need to stretch now and then <laughs> <laughs> um, I would recommend people watch it yeah I think as we'll probably get into discussing more in a sec um, there's a lot of really fascinating things to it and it's one of those films that even if it doesn't make my own personal top 250 it's uh, absolutely well worth watching cool and Andrew yes I would um I I'd, it would like it, but it would be a qualified recommendation. It's not. It's not as you alluded to. It's not that easy to get a hold of, um, and it's maybe not a movie that you necessarily want to watch at any um, uh, particular time. You 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 might you might kind of need to pick your moments with this, and um, for certain people especially, I felt like there. I don't have a I I don't have any sisters, but, but like like, um, and I'm not thinking about anyone in particular. But the the the, the daughter mother uh, um, uh, relationship um, in in this movie um, might might I, I I feel like it might almost be kind of triggering for 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 people who um, who would relate um, to it too strongly. Um, so yeah, I would I would recommend it as a great movie, but to 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 know that it's not um, it's not easy to watch necessarily, um, but yeah, check it out. Do make time for it. Absolutely, yeah. I will say it's that worthless. in my note in my notes I did actually type, "Man, I had a really happy childhood while watching." It. Yeah, that me too. My- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like the the, the it's. It's like it. It's 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 just it's just that it's 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 kind of um, yeah. It it it's it it's tough, I guess. 
Um, but I think it's relatable. Like, I, I kind of guess um, Charlotte. Like, so, yeah, I guess. Yeah. And I, I would recommend it as well. I, I do. I think it's worth seeking out. Um, it is available if you're in the States on the Criterion channel. Um, it is unfortunately not available in the UK at the moment, but you can order it online. The Criterion Blu-ray and DVD are available and can be shipped to your location as well if you want to check it out. Um, it is, I think, well worth your time and well worth seeking out. It is very intense. It is perhaps not an upper. So, you know, again, as Andrew said, maybe pick your moments in it. Uh, but I do think that it rewards uh, viewing and I do think that it demands attention. And I think that it's great that it I got a chance to watch it because it came onto the list. All right, then, with that in mind, then, we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. And she get. <laughs> now, normally what I do is I'd open this segment by asking Ronan what he thought of the film, and I'm going to do that in a second, but because Andrew came out so strongly uh, during the kind of section we were asking about, I think it's only fair. Andrew, what is autumn sonata about for you oh oh goodness um so many things is i guess um and and a kind of an easy way um to answer it but it 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 is about for me i think at its most central it is about the way that we perceive the world i guess and because because there's there's and 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 the way different people um can can take away our sense of reality or who who can who can kind of add to it if that makes any sense at all because then and i suppose what i mean is and apologies if i'm not being very coherent but there there there's a real kind of solipsism to um, Charlotte's character that's contrasted so strongly um, with Ava, because for 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 Ava, other people exist um, so powerfully; they loom large. People who don't exist exist for Ava. Her her son um, is is somebody um, who died at four. But who 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 is with her every day of her life, um, as a parent, as 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 if he were he were there. Whereas whereas for Charlotte, it's quite the opposite. She can't. She can't imagine people's faces. She can't imagine people's faces. People she, who are still alive. Yeah, yeah. She, she can't she, remember the birth of her children beyond the pain that it caused her. Yeah. And for her, everything, everything that anybody feels like, like there's, there's, there's a line that I think gets repeated in it is, is that Ava has to correct, um, Charlotte by saying, I'm not annoyed, I'm upset. Because kind of an, an annoyed is to do with kind of, oh, have I annoyed you? And it's, it's like, no, you, 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 you haven't, you haven't caused annoyance. You've caused upset. This isn't about, um, me accusing you of something. This is me telling you how you've made me feel. You know, um, it's that old parental cliche. I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed. Right? Yeah. They, 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 it's it's, and it's interesting because I think Ava understands her mother and loves her mother. 
but can't forgive her mother. And and the movie isn't about kind of them um, making up. I think her mother wishes it was. Um, she wants she wants it to she wants to have this out and never speak of it again. Because that's second best to never speaking <laughs> about it at, all. at all. Yeah. So the, the um and it, it, it and I guess the reason the reason why I feel for Charlotte is that um we do lose ourselves um sometimes to other people and we do it, it, generally speaking we do it gladly but sometimes we want to kind of decide not to we want to kind of to, um uh, be selfish um and and uh for 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 good and great reasons um our society doesn't really um um well Encourage i mean us. Yeah, it doesn't to 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 one extent or another. Or if it does encourage us, it it kind of does it in a double speak sort of a way. Um, but yeah, the, the the um, you like yeah, it's it's um that that was that was that was kind of what it was about to me. But as I said, it's about a lot of things. It's kind of it it's 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 about religion and meaning, and kind of um. Uh, yeah, self. Yeah, the self, self pity, and also selflessness. And I don't mean like that. Ava is very generous or anything, but she doesn't have she. Uh, she doesn't know who she is. Yeah, she, she has she's, no real identity. Yeah, she's waiting for God to to find something for her. Well, not even um, God. I think she's waiting for anybody else around her almost to define her as a result of her relationship with her mother. Like, there's a bit where she comes at the start. She has her husband, Victor, read the letters in order to, like, tell her that they're good letters, for example. Yeah. And, and, and the, it's not any, it's, it, it's nobody else's fault and nobody else can fix it. And I think maybe, like, including her mother, um, because there, there's something repeated over and over again is, um, and and it's a, a there's a kind of like an um uh i don't know if dramatic irony is the right word but the the the, the use of certain phrases like she says oh um my lover got me this uh, watch cuz he says i was always late and she is always late like she's not just too late now but she was too late when she when ava was 14 yeah. Um, she's forever too late. She's, because, she never showed up for Eric's like birth for his funeral for anything yeah, like that as well. Because because once you take you once you take what a person is, like it's very difficult to then kind of um, come along and um, have a relationship with that person who you have stopped from being a person. You know. Um, because they don't have anything there because you took it from them. Um, they, they, they like it's it's very difficult for them to give you kind of what you what you want from them because you've you've deserted them and you've left them bereft and you've um, yeah and that's 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 I guess what this movie is about. Um, you made a good point earlier, Andrew, about how it's it's the kind of film that you can't quite take your eyes away from um, to to write a note. And I did. There were very few moments where I did um, get to actually, um, you know, kind of pull away and note something down. One of the things I did put down was uh, a quote from Ava. My biggest obstacle is I don't know who I am. 
Yeah. And that's the real clash of it for me. It's the, it's the kind of huge clash. These, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to grow up in the shadow of a towering personality and then to live a life away from that person and to have no real understanding of who you are without that, to have been defined all your life by people around in comparison to that person and to do it to yourself then in that person's absence. Um, it's a great drama of somebody figuring out how to conceive of themselves and, in relation only to someone else. And the, it felt like the reason she couldn't be anything is because her mother couldn't find anything within her that she could love. So who could she be if 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 none of those parts of her were worthy of love? Then why would she want to be any of those um, people that she that um, that she is? Which is really kind of a, 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 um, I guess heartbreaking part of it. Yeah, I mean, she talks about that summer where her mother came home and forced her to play and forced her to do aerobics and forced her to read books and converse and talk about things that she didn't understand, but she just kind of echo back or try to imitate what her mother wanted her to say. And again, as, as Andrew pointed out, that's very much telling her that she herself was not worthy of love. And more than that, that she couldn't be a person that would be worthy of her mother's love or that her mother wanted to love, uh, which is, again, very bleak and depressing in terms of, of realizing of self. That's kind of that's the tragedy of these two women. Like, on the one hand, you have Charlotte, who has been who has become this celebrated, um, celebrated uh, pianist. And she clearly has very high standards for herself and for all the other people in her life. Although, as Andrew said, she's very solipsistic in her view. The other people in her life are there for her. But then, considering that she doesn't feel her own daughter has lived up to her expectations, you have Ava, this daughter, who now is struggling to define herself. And she's trying to she's trying to define herself um, by the other people that she tries to bring into her life. So she had her son, but it was only very brief because, of course, he died while young. Her husband, who is quite a bit older than her and is, there's clearly signs there that she just has these horrendous parental issues. Um, yeah, he's, and, he's like a version of her dad, isn't he? Because he yeah, has the pipe. So. Yeah, the, even yeah. the way they're shot with the pipe, it's very yeah. They look, they are, uh, they're made to look r- quite similar. And I mean, he's uh, a minister as well, so he stands in for God, the other father, who Andrew alluded to there as well. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so because so you have two women, one of whom isn't allowed to, isn't allowing herself to have a, a relatively normal existence because of the high standards she's achieved, and she's also not allowed her own daughter to. Uh, to be considered worthy of love because of those standards and her own wants. And so both have been rendered quite lonely and miserable as a result. Um, Sorry, just to bring it back there, actually, because I I did want to ask Ronan uh, what that, what the movie was about for you. Like what is, what is um, Autumn Sonata about for you? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's kind of what Andrew's getting at around that sense of identity. I think I, I agree with you. I feel uh, kind of a great deal of sympathy for Charlotte because um, you know, when it comes to trying to understand yourself from an identity perspective, um, kids are a huge part of it, right? They're the mark you leave on the world. Um, and I think she, in various ways, can't face either of her children, is horrified at the idea, although she masks it well, that her other daughter is in the house. And there's a lot of really wrenching scenes around putting on a brave face and making it seem like she's the good one to go talk to her other daughter who she hasn't seen in years. And it's just like, oh, I thought she was still in that hospital. 
Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have come if I'd known she was here, basically, is the, the non yeah. subtext. Um, and I think even Eva calls her out on that while Eva's being charitable. That's in the early stage of the movie where Eva's like, isn't it great that she's here? By the way, I didn't tell her because if I told her, she wouldn't have come, uh, which is... Um, it's worth actually mentioning there that uh, Helena is played by uh, Lena Ny- Nyman, uh, being cast against type, best known internationally for I Am Curious Yellow um, a couple of years earlier, and apparently known in Sweden as a comedic actor. Um, so I kind of like the idea that this is basically um, her kind of doing an Adam Sandler kind of thing, kind of like just showing <laughs> her range dramatically. Um, That's quite, quite a comparison I didn't expect, but it's uh, good that you mentioned I Am Curious Yellow, which of course was infamously seized upon by the authorities in the US because this is the film that kind of uh, portrayed uh, Sweden as this land of unabashed uh, sexual proclivity and self-expression. And and to uh, be clear, for completely unrelated me- uh, reasons, the most successful uh, foreign film of all time at the US box office at that point. Uh, completely unrelated, obviously. Yeah, obviously. Um, yeah. Although, funnily enough, if you've ever seen I Am Curious Yellow, it's strangely dull. <laughs> Um, but, oh no! Uh, now I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I was told I was on board <laughs> until that point. But um, it's it is strange that, or indeed quite apt, that you have uh, Lena Lyman, who's cast in this role, who once upon a time defined this kind of uh, sexual self-expression and youthfulness, suddenly being cast as a a symbol of Charlotte's own as the cause of Charlotte's neglect and Charlotte's pursuit of her own desires. And you have this uh, crippled daughter who's be- who she left behind, uh, a-, a very human embodiment of her own, of her own selfishness in a way. I mean, it's, it is remarkable a feat of Autumn Sonatas that it does make you feel for Charlotte, even though she is being constantly bombarded by reminders of her own failures as a parent and any scene where um, where this mother and daughter have to interact is quite heartbreaking. One of the most powerful scenes is where um, Charlotte meets Helena for the first time in the house. They haven't seen each other in years. And Helena is clearly quite happy to see her mother and gasping and uh, expressing herself as best she can. And Bergman's face in that is once is expressing a certain amount of joy, but she is barely holding it together. Like watching her, she's reminded of the heartbreak that she's inflict that she knows she's inflicted on her daughters. And it's, I mean, it's shattering to watch, absolutely shattering. And it's a emotional pitch is reached in that moment that the film rarely lets go of for the rest of its runtime. And it's worth noting as well that Helena there kind of serves as a metaphor because the way in which Helena is physically um, impaired mirrors the way in which uh, Eva is emotionally impaired. And you have that kind of recurring motif where Helena kind of struggles to speak and Eva has to speak for her and kind of formulate the words for her. And like the big tension throughout the movie is whether Eva will find the courage in herself, and she eventually does with alcohol, to speak to her mother the way that she needs to, if she'll find a way to express herself. Um, and even the way in, in which... Vino Veritas. And even, well, again, I think, and it's interesting that 
Bergman himself was apparently notoriously um, not fond of alcohol. He would only drink on special occasions, uh, which is kind of interesting as well. But it's worth noting that in, in that sense, you even have like the conscious mirroring of things. So obviously you have like the sequence where Helena kind of falls out of the bed on her back and you have that contrasted um, with sort of Charlotte uh, lying on the back, lying on her back, trying to heal her back pain. Kind the contrasting that you have between the two as well. It's all very, very, very well done, I think. The mirroring and echoing and kind of symmetry. Well, symmetry has to be invoked in one way or another in a narrative like this because one of the great pains of our lo- of anybody's life is that love them or hate them, we are our parents' children and we can't es- we can't escape them. There's a great sense that, you know, we're doomed to become our parents. And the relationship between these daughters with their mother, there clearly is a desire for everybody to be happy and get along and love each other. But it's it's the basic lesson of life that, you know, our choices, our desires, they make those relationships or they can make those relationships that bit more difficult because parents want to imagine their children being basically reflections of themselves you know you try and you you try and raise your children as you see best as the way you want them to be you know that's a christian idea of being made in god's own image um and when they don't turn out as you imagine whether because of lifestyle choices or physical illness or any number of variables that we simply can't account for um it puts it puts a wedge between people, and that's the ultimate lesson of autumn sonata. I think um, that you will you can try as desperately as you want, but there are some chasms you can't bridge. Um, I mean, it is it's worth noting there. Actually, just we're probably going to talk about Ingrid Bergman uh, in a moment. Kind of the resonance the movie probably has in terms of her own history, her own uh, kind of journey, and and her own kind of like personal life as well but in terms of of ingmar bergman um and obviously we talked about this before how he draws a lot of his writing from his own history a lot of autumn sonata actually did come from his own past so the the country parsonage for example is is comparable to the one that his parents had in a small mining community in the north of stockholm um yeah obviously victor is is kind of a preacher much like his father eric bergman was for example and i think that peter cowie said that like helena's uh, physical disability um has been read by Bergman as kind of a a metaphor for his own, what he feels to be his own repressed, distorted personality that he suffered as a consequence of his kind of forbidding childhood. Um, And his own mother uh, embodied for Bergman the essential clash between motherhood and professional career. Um, So you have this kind of like the idea of kind of playing out this psychodrama in his own work. Um, So again, that idea of seeing himself in both Eva as the child and arguably also um, in the kind of parent as well, because obviously he had his own family. I think at this stage he was on his fourth marriage. Um, He was obviously a film director who would leave frequently, go off and make these films, much like Charlotte herself. So you have the idea that Bergman is both parent and child. And I think that it's notable that his original draft of the story for this um, ended with like a line or scene that he could never get working, which was in the end, the daughter gives birth to the mother. And apparently he could never find a way to visualize that on screen. But apparently that was how he always saw the ending of the movie working. The idea of kind of the the parent and child being interlinked or kind of mirrored or kind of tied together, not in a linear progressive sense, but as, as Phil pointed out, the idea that you recur, that it's almost like an echo. I'm glad you do. I'm, 
I'm glad he couldn't go down that route because that would have been a, an image that I think, well, besides logistically how to make it happen, but I think a lot of audiences would have perhaps have seen it as a jump too far. Like, why do that? Especially when we have what exists now as Autumn Sonata and it, he's you know manifested that just through the basic words and actions of uh, of his actors, his characters. Um, but yeah, that I've, when you say when Andrew points out that it's very you find yourself feeling very sorry and empathizing with Charlotte um I mean, it's quite clear that he does see himself in both these characters and um yeah I, he, I think we said this before when we talked about Seven Seal that uh even though it might seem like a bit of a cliche but clearly uh Bergman used his films to exercise some of his own personal demons and it should be uh, reiterated because you mentioned this earlier, Darren, that when he made Autumn Sonata, it was very much in a kind of transitory period when he lived in a self-imposed exile abroad because of his issues with the Swedish tax authorities. This was done at a point where he was very much transitioning to a more theatrical style. Um, this was actually the last film that he made expressly for for his theatrical release. Um, after this, it works like Fanny and Alexander and scenes from marriage, they would be released cinematically, but in compartmentalized, um, shorter versions. They're originally They're miniseries, weren't they? Yeah. Miniseries, exactly. Yeah. So he probably saw this as an opportunity to exercise this particularly large monkey on his back. Basically, the relationship between he and his parents, his father especially. Now, he'd done it before, but and, you know, it'd be done in a much more kind of obvious way i suppose in family and alexander but um it's clearly quite effective um because there's so much that so many of us can relate to in a film like autumn sonata and he i would like to think that any director who tries to put this kind of this side of themselves this kind of emotion on screen and if they find that audiences respond to it it must be reassuring i'd like to think that everybody seems to empathize with it, that everybody can relate to it in some way or another. Um, it's one of those films where you look at the two main characters and you think somebody, everybody who watches it will see themselves in one of these characters. I won't ask what, who you see yourselves in, but um, yeah, it's, it's very relatable. And I think that's the most thing that any director or a writer for film will strive for. It's kind of a shame that we don't have a um, a woman on uh, this week to talk about it, uh, because I, I I found myself thinking as well. Even from the description of the movie, is kind of it provokes um, thoughts as well about a, the 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 kind of place of women in uh, that society, because there's nothing kind of strange or unusual. It's almost expected for. Um, a father of the twentieth century to, to be, leave home and yeah, go out and do to work, be distant, and to have a career, and yet yeah, yeah, then, a and, and there's a kind of um, like she lived with her father. He didn't give her any of the things that her like, mother had um, 
you know, um, neglected. Her ride, yeah. yeah, yeah. So then, like, he only she ended, she ended up having loneliness. to mother. Yeah, she had to um, end up having to mother him almost to an extent because she talks about reading the letters. She talks about assuring him that his mother st- that her mother still loved him. That's exactly. So the emotional well, labor fell on her rather than on him. And I, I guess, I, I suppose maybe it's the infidelity or maybe it's just how much she looked up to her mother, but there's no, there's no, there's no blame whatsoever for the father. And I'm wondering, like, kind of, I, I, I would, I, I would sort of be reluctant to, 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 to say that the, that the movie is kind of, it is a, a feminist, or I'd also be reluctant to say that the movie is misogynistic, but I think it's thought provoking along both those lines. Um, it's, I, it's, I think it's a reminder as well that, any person in a family is filling more than one role. I mean, in a family like this unit, for example, um, Charlotte is not just a mother, she's also a wife. You know, a daughter is uh, is a daughter to not just one parent, but two. Uh, and um, it's, it's just, it's a bit like a, it's like a Jenga, you know, you remove one block and the whole thing threatens to fall. And it's, it doesn't like the key about it is that it doesn't judge any of its characters necessarily more harshly than anyone else. Charlotte would, on the surface, appear to bear most of the blame because she went off to have this illustrious career uh, at the expense of spending time with her family, including her husband, and you know they all suffered as a result of that. But there is a there's also you get a sense that perhaps this was that was a life that. Um, that Charlotte didn't necessarily want. I mean, that's, I think, reflected in what she imposed on Ava throughout her childhood. You know, she wanted her daughter to be a reflection of her and perhaps maybe even better because um, she maybe wanted to go on, be just as good as her, a, a musician as her, and but maybe be completely unfettered, maybe not to get married and not to have children. And therein lies some the the kind of the parental regret not just that you perhaps abandoned your children but that you couldn't make them the image that you always wanted of them well there, there there's a regret as well about making children yeah oh yeah you know, absolutely that like they you they had no choice you know but to be but to be born and that it was like an irresponsible act well kind of the, yeah and one of the things that I think Peter Carey's oh, pointed out sorry. is that, like, is that uh, Bergman's films, despite focusing on married couples, very rarely before you get to, and again, you mentioned Fanny and Alexander comes further down the line, but outside of Fanny and Alexander, they very rarely feature children. Most often children appear at the edge of the frame or as they do here kind of in photos. But like, there's a real sense, and again, not to get into the cliche of Bergman as kind of like the art house depressive Swedish director, no, but, but the seven, idea that seven, bringing... Bring, sorry, no, no, go ahead bringing children into this world is something that is kind of like something that should be dreaded with all of our issues and kind of narcissism. And I mean, Seven Seal is a counterpoint to that. It feels very kind of like, like that's where I feel a lot of the hope sort of um, uh, resides in, 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 in that movie. Mm. Um, well, the, you know, in that film, the counterpoint, you know, the battle is between life and death and, you know, to counterpoint death, you create new life. That's, yeah. It's, it's a simple idea, but it is one that you say is very, very optimistic and filled with hope. Um, but in, in, in Autumn Sonata, like that is the kind of the debate that rages, like 
Charlotte's ultimate regret is probably that she has these daughters at all. Whereas Ava hasn't lived up to her standards and Helena is a cripple who reminds her so much of her failings. So she's she sees her children as a, bur- as a burden that she never probably never wanted in the first place as reflected in the fact that later on we learn that Ava became pregnant at 18 and uh, Charlotte uh, made her terminate it because she felt the boyfriend was an idiot and they couldn't be parents. Um, which is which is kind of typical of these kind of films that are made in that Bergman-esque way. You know, it's revelation upon revelation and drama upon drama and trauma upon drama. And that's kind of what happens here. But I suppose if any one film has to kind of have that, be it, it can get away with that cliche, it's probably this one. But it's... It's about to you know we've got two people here trying to reconcile, even though because of those individual choices and the revelations we learn about, it's just doomed not to happen. And I think the audience learns that before the characters do, which just makes it all the more heartbreaking. Um, just to to bring it back to something Andrew said there, actually, um, in terms of like the the movie's kind of sexual politics, which I find fascinating, because it is it's a movie that was made in nineteen seventy eight, which was kind of like second wave feminism at that point. I think maybe on the cusp of third wave, but the idea of kind of like women going out and working, and women having to be in the world, and women basically being allowed for the first time to have careers, and the pushback that was happening as a result of that coming out of the sixties. And so it's interesting that you have kind of um, Charlotte defined in those terms as a woman who went out who t- who had a a job who had a profession who had a calling and who pursued that and kind of andrew's observation that if it was a man maybe you wouldn't see the same pushback from it you wouldn't see the same level of kind of shame or guilt or kind of like she even points out that story that she tells where she was out eating with the with the conductor and a stranger came up to her and said why aren't you at home with your kids um and it's, it's worth kind of noting that there was a bunch of debates happening around this time about portrayals of kind of like women and working women in film. And I think that like um, Judith Martin, for example, said that, you know, in dramatic works in the late 70s, women were coming under a lot of flack um, for abandoning their kids. There were like lots of movies that were kind of based around that in her kind of reading that she was aware of coming out around that time. And it's also interesting to note on the other extreme, and this is kind of one of the things that I was fascinated to discover, is that like around the same time you started seeing pushback because uh, Ingmar Bergman, and if you look at, say, the screenplay for Autumn Sonata, on the back of it, uh, Ingmar Bergman says that one of the things that drew him to write it and work on it was because he had seen so many stories about men and their dads. And I mean, we talk on the 250 about how many movies there are about dad stuff, Star Wars, Inception, you know, arguably the Batman movies, all that sort of stuff. They're all anchored in this idea of men's relationship to their fathers. Uh, but Bergman said that he hadn't seen as many stories about women and their mothers, and that kind of intrigued him. And it's fascinating that I, I managed to dig up an article from 1979 in the New York Times, uh, which basically amounted to, yeah, but you, what you about... You need to clean your house, Darren. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's cobwebs. It's felt kind of dank and, and manky, but I managed to open it up to uh, section D, page 17. You throw that out after you've read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but like there was a there was actually a pushback in 1979, which basically said, "What about the men?" Um, saying that you know this wave <laughs> this wave of movies about women and their relationships to other women and mothers and their place in the workforce. Sure, they're all fine and dandy, but I mean, can't we get back to talking about how important men are? And the the movies that were singled out there were Autumn Sonata, California Suite. 
uh, Coming Home, which famously won the Best Actress Oscar um, this year, sorry, the year that this was released, and also won the Best Screenplay Oscar, both of which it was competing against Autumn Sonata. Uh, that's the Jane Fonda movie, and we'll probably come back to that. Get Out Your Handkerchiefs, The Innocent, Interiors, Moment by Moment, um, and the Wiz, arguably, as well, was somehow on that list uh, from the New York Times. But it's kind of interesting that as even back then in 1979, you were seeing people going, well, no, 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 hold on. I'm all for stories about women. But do they all have to be stories about women, even though they're clearly not? Was the California Wiz- Suite is such a weird <laughs> film to put on that list. It's 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 kind of remarkably gender balanced, you know. Yeah. <laughs> not the not the Wiz. Do you want do you want me to read the section? <laughs> just like read the section uh, on this on um on Autumn Sonata. So this is the the reporter. And what? by the way, this appears Sorry, to be written anonymously. I'm, com- I'm confused. The, the the Wiz was the Wizard of Oz recast yes. with people of color, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was. Yes, it right. was. And directed by Sidney Lumet. Yep. What a fantastic! Yeah, it's a great cast because it had the what's his name um, Michael Jackson as Scarecrow, Michael Jackson and and Diana Ross. I always forget his name. The guy from um, like he shot a kid in um, in, (laughs) from Die Hard. Oh, uh, oh, from Die Hard. Yes, yeah, yeah. And the father from Family Matters with Urkel, um, who watched watched his serious drama get turned into like a story about a high pitched kid. Um, But anyway, so in Ghostbusters, it's a very small (laughs) part. Anyway, sorry. Everybody's in Ghostbusters. I love that. I love that he's in Ghostbusters. Has turned into our new recurring fifty <laughs> Um But just just to give an example of this, so here is what the New York Times wrote in February nineteen seventy nine about how this whole women in cinema thing was getting out of hand. Yes, even Ingmar Bergman, one of our greatest living directors, is guilty. If one is truly militant, the tact that Bergman makes great films should not cut any ice. Bergman has always been partial to women, and he has become more so with age. He appreciates women's problems. He is fascinated by women. He loves them. He writes rich roles for them, and none richer, perhaps, than the two he created for Ingrid Bergman and Liv Ullman in Autumn Somata. Yet, must he do this at the expense of our manhood? If you've seen Autumn Sonata, try, right this minute, to remember one scene in which a man figures prominently. The fellow who plays Miss Oldman's husband has a good monologue at the beginning of the movie, but anyone who remembers the name of the actor must be a trivia expert. Was this definitely not ironic? Nineteen seventy-nine. Yeah. All I know is that th- clearly this uh, director never saw, or this writer never saw Persona. <laughs> yeah. Um, but right? I, I mean. Berman is always always wrote really good roles for women, so for him just to to jump on this now feels, I mean, it feels churlish best. I think it was um, it was part of kind of a wider movement, but I kind of, I do love the. Uh, I, he's fascinated by women. He loves them. I kind of love the sarcastic. Well, if he loves them so much, maybe he should run off and write a movie for them. Um, well, you know what? We shouldn't focus on like the the good thing is that we've moved on from these sorts yes, of arguments. Yes, and absolutely nobody is making these arguments on the internet at the moment. But I, kind of, yeah. I just I kind of did have that moment going back to 1979, going, oh yeah, that was that was a thing back then. Um, but yeah, sorry, back to back to Charlotte, actually, because Charlotte is a fascinating character. And it's what Andrew said, which is 
Charlotte is initially presented as almost a comically evil monster. Like the point where like whenever anybody brings up like a key life moment that she missed, her first response is to make it about her. It's like, oh yeah, I was off doing Mozart. Oh no, that's when I was doing doing Chopin. Oh, that's when I was practicing back. I remember that time very well. And even throughout you have this bit where she's so self-centered where it's like, oh wow, I've got five million francs. I should maybe buy, you know, my daughter and her husband a car. No, 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 no. I'll buy myself a car and I'll give them my old car. Um, that'd be the perfect generous thing to do. Um, and like, yeah. It's comically solipsistic, isn't yeah. it? I, when I, when I rewatched it this time, I remember when she swanned in and she has the hair all bouffanted up and she's in this chic outfit and whatnot. My first thought was, uh, you know, a, a horrific creature along the lines of Hyacinth Bucket from Keeping Up Appearances, you know. Swans in, <laughs> little regard for anybody else. It's all me, me, me. And, oh, and I was off doing this. And, oh, poor Leonardo. And da, 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 da. And, okay, fair enough. She, she lost one of her great loves. But... But I you bought know, myself it, this it, outfit it to make myself quite... feel better, which is my, like, I really love that. It's like, Leonardo, he died. It was terrible. But I bought this outfit right off the stand, and I think it suits me. What do you think? I think it looks fantastic. No, I think it it, it is very comic. There's there's a huge yeah. amount of really conscious comedy in there. I love the way I, I picked it up a lot more this time, the way she swans in, and when they have that first scene in the room, she's helping her get all her luggage in there. Um, she just goes on and on and on and on about herself. Oh, and I, I found it really, off. really funny chuckling away. But then she does pivot and says, oh, I've talked all about myself. What about you? And she gets one line in before her mother goes, are you terribly lonely? Because <laughs> I am. so cool. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's a real, um, it's, a, it's a clever move by Bergman in, the, in how he's, you know, putting the audience in this co- relatively comfortable comedic position uh, at the start before he starts launching his emotional stealth bombs. Because, you know, she goes back into her spiels about herself and so on and so forth. And suddenly, just completely breaking the rhythm, um, Ava announces, Helena is here. And Bergman's face falls. And the film enters into a whole new register at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, is it's remarkable. Like, it turns on a dime. And very few directors, or, or indeed writers, can do that so effectively. and the audience is caught on the back uh, on the back foot as much as Bergman's character is it, and then you're entering into a no man's and you're not quite sure where it's going to go or what the subsequent reactions are going to be but i think um, it's i think it's, it's fascinating that like the film manages to make her sympathetic though like despite that beginning despite being so self-centered despite being by all measures seeming like a monster of a human being um she still ends up being a character that you do feel sorry for that you do feel empathy for that you feel compassion for and i find that kind of fascinating that how it's able to do that um given how it starts with her i think that's quite impressive no yeah like to to her to her selfishness kind of her 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 reaction to eva's hatred um it's not an apology is she's not uh, contrite she doesn't really try to atone um you don't even feel sad she um that ava is so upset it's 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 that she it's her 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 main reaction is like oh my god i have a daughter who hates me yeah 
you know, the, 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 wrap the, your the, arms around me. Will you hug me? Hug me. Come on, hug me, please. <laughs> it's like, forgive me. <laughs> um, um, it's like, forgive me, so I'll feel better. You know, um, it's 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 incredible. But but the, it's it's kind of like um, it's it, I it's it's a strange kind of a um, sympathy that we feel for her. I I know I know certainly for myself anyway the 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 kind of um, I guess the curse of caring like that 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 you 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 kind of want to be um, uh, selfish sometimes and 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 it, you I guess you 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 can't because you care about people. Um, and but you can't you can't help but feel that everybody's life in this might have been just that bit easier if uh, Charlotte had been a bit more true to herself early on and right. moved uh, moved away and divorced her husband and let he and Ava get on with their lives separate from her. Like it might have been emotionally quite harsh at the beginning, but all three characters might have had richer lives for it in the end but she can't because she feels the bond flesh and blood and marriage she is her she is ava's mother and she doesn't she doesn't sleep Mm. and there's 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 the the inappropriate smoking of her smoking when she when she's feeling anxious which is what like kind of smokers do they kind of like do it in order to kind of calm themselves Um, down but they're taking a stimulant um, <laughs> uh, one of life's wonderful ironies. Um, um, is it worth talking about Ingrid Bergman actually here? Because again, oh, I think so. One of the one of the things that again Bergman had kind of like wanted to work with um, Ingmar for uh, quite a while. Um, in fact, he'd actually pro- met her in the early sixties and promised that he'd work with her at some point. He'd come up with there, a role for her. There's um, a great story, actually. I think it was as it might have been a can. It was can. It was a can in yeah. 1973. Yeah, she was on the jury, as I recall. Or possibly, I, she was She's, on the she jury. Was there for, she was on the jury. I'm not sure. She might have been heading the jury, possibly, but I'm not entirely yeah. sure. But uh, she ran into Berg to her namesake there, and she slipped a note into his pocket, which said to uh, said reminded him, "You you promised me a part in a film." Yeah, she uh, was she, the president of the jury. Yeah. Ah, there we are. So, you know, it, it's. It's one. It's a. It's a kind of thing we see now and again, where you know, uh, an elder, respected actor looks to work with a younger, up and coming, hotshot director, or at least a director that might not be in the mainstream. So, like Berg, Ingmar Bergman had a, a pretty lengthy career even at this stage, but you know, he wasn't. He, he was Sweden's fi- uh, finest directorial export. You know, we, we're not talking Hollywood here, but. Ingrid Bergman, like at this stage, and I think it's easy to forget this because we remember her from a few select roles, her works with Hitchcock or Casablanca, say. Yeah. But by this stage, she'd won three Oscars. Yeah. And, you know, was still a, a, an actress in relative demand. Like just four years before this, she'd won an Oscar, one of those kind of, oh, we'll give them an Oscar because they're them, uh, for a relatively small part in Murder on the Orient Express. And... You know, it was that she famously said that she didn't expect to win and so had no speech prepared at that Oscar ceremony. And she probably felt that she was getting kind of shortchanged, um, which is a common complaint of actresses above a certain age, even to this day, uh, that the roles just aren't there, unless you're Meryl Streep. So 
for her to get this script with a very deep and trying uh, character for her must have been must have been uh, wonderful for her. But the thing is, uh, how much it reflected of her own life. Partly, that has to wonder at on first reading. She must have thought, "You bastard," because so much of what um, Charlotte goes through in her life events in this is so reflective of what she did. Most infamously, of course, Ingrid Bergman was the centre of a scandal when she left her husband uh, following an affair with the director Roberto Rossellini. And she went and lived with him. for. She was separated from her daughter in Sweden for a while after she left. And there is the instance in this film where Charlotte moved in with another man and was separated from her daughter for a period of eight months. Um, it cuts very close to the bone. And you'd wonder, like, you'd have to assume that the part was written for Bergman. Uh, in, for, like, it's a tricky one. Uh, I, she gives a fantastic performance here. There's absolutely no denying that. But there's part of me that wonders how much of this is Ingmar Bergman perhaps exploiting the knowledge that his audience would have of his leading actress. It's a mm, bit of a cruelty, maybe. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But it's, it, it cuts very close, I, I think. Apparently there was a big push and pull between the two Bergman, as it were, about whether or not um, how sympathetic Charlotte should be. I think at one point, um, Ingrid Bergman suggested that they add some jokes to like liven it up, that she be shown to be a bit more kind of funny. And Ing Ingmar Bergman was like, no, 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 you do it as written. And I think at one stage she was like, seven years, seven years away from my daughter seems like it's far too much. Can we go with five? And apparently Ingmar said, fine, you can read the line as five. And he just cut the line and had other characters say seven um in order to like get his point across as well um i think like that that's the moment where i think that uh, ingrid bergman like when she read the script asked ingmar the people you know must be monsters um just based on the reaction that she had to kind of reading charlotte but again it, it's worth noting that this was obviously ingrid bergman's last uh, performance she announced it uh, before the film was released that this was going to be her last performance because she'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer um not everybody knew it at the time i think that ing i think that ingmar knew it at the time when they were shooting but i don't think anybody else did um, they had to tinker actually with the shooting schedule of autumn sonata slightly to allow her to go and under to undergo uh, some surgery for the cancer uh, when she was suffering from cancer at this time this is her second bout and she never fully recovered. This was a, this was her last theatrical performance. Her final performance was a few years later, uh, portraying Golda Meir in a TV movie. And at that stage, she was dying from cancer. She died shortly afterwards. Um, but uh, if you want to take this as a swan song, um, it's a great one. Like she is phenomenal. And again, there's that uh, there's that uh, tendency to maybe overlook Bergman's talents as an actress because of maybe she's associated with bigger films or because of her personal life, whatever else. But she was a remarkable screen presence, not just because of her beauty, but you know, the, she's one of those people who could do so much acting with very little movement of her face. It's her eyes are transfixing and it's perfect for an Ingmar Bergman film, considering how much he focuses 
on faces. There is the great scene halfway through, and it's almost like prototypical Bergman in this scene, where um, there is the playing of the Chopin on the piano, and you get Ava, Liv Ullman, looking at her mother, at Ingrid Bergman. And it's the classic thing of two faces not facing each other, but the camera in cap uh, captures both. And when that happens, like there's so many emotions going across both faces at the same time. It's it's riveting to watch. And uh, besides the associations that Ingmar Bergman might have uh, drawn from his leading lady's uh, personal associations, like he he's somebody who knew how to who knew to use a face. And I think Ingrid Bergman absolutely had a face for that belonged on a big screen because it could convey so much. I mean, I think the critical response to this was that they were seeing a whole new side. Like, even the critics who were kind of sniffy about the movie, who's like, that Bergman's being Bergman, uh, made the point that, like, Ingrid Bergman was showing a side that they hadn't seen from her before. And again, it's notable that throughout their careers, uh, throughout her career, critics had been quite snobbish about uh, Ingrid Bergman. They'd been very much along the lines of, well, she's a pretty face. She's a commodity on the market. She just, like, even in Casablanca, you know, one of the most iconic and beloved films ever made, it was very much, well, she looks pretty when you put a camera on her. What more could you ask her to do? Um, and so like this performance was something that really kind of opened up and it's notable that she did get an Oscar nomination for it. And again, a foreign language uh, performance getting an Oscar nomination is quite rare. Um, now it has been pointed out that like you have an advantage where you're already an established presence as, as Phil pointed out, she won for uh, Murder on the Orient Express. And so like Oscar nominees in foreign languages tend to be established performers. People who've already got Oscar nominations for English language stuff. So like Sophia Loren for Marriage Italian Style or Max von Sydow for you know, um, Pele the Conqueror, for example, Pen uh, Penelope Cruz in Volver and Javier Bardem in Beautiful. But again, it's still striking that like this primarily Swedish language film that by all accounts didn't have a large swell of grand swell support for it, managed to get Ingrid Bergman uh, an Oscar nomination. It's a dazzling performance. Well, it's, it's a tremendous character. It's it, it should draw any actor worth their salt, you know, one that's so densely and well written. And it's an interesting kind of contrast as well, because, like I said earlier, this is a film that was made at a time when Ingmar Bergman was not, was probably not in the best place, mentally speaking, as far as responses to him were. Like, like he was, he was living still in this self-imposed exile in Germany. And, you know, the last couple of films he'd made before this were not successes at all. So suddenly to maybe the casting of Bergman, who is almost certainly the biggest, starriest name that he has in any of his films. Um, it's, is it a gamble, a go for broke, try and do something new to shake things up? Possibly. Um, but at least when he does it, he does it on his terms. Uh, he gets the biggest Swedish-speaking star he can find, gives her a character that I think for any number of reasons the actress could balk at, but leans into it, goes for it. And what he gets out of her is um, mesmerizing. Um, Ronan, I'd, I'd, oh, sorry. Oh, no, no, sorry. Um, I was going to ask Ronan, what about what about yourself and, and kind of Ingrid Bergman's performance here, like in terms of 
Yeah, I think, Phil, what you say about what, what uh, Ingmar Bergman gets out of her, but I think it's as much what she gives. Um, you know, we've we've talked a lot about the way that the, the film is written and the scripting of it, the idea of him empathizing with both characters, bringing to that dynamic a lot of um, a lot of sympathy and characterization going the other way. But I think so much of that is down to Ingrid Bergman's face, as we've said already. The, the depths of pain, it's exactly as you say, the, the scene where she reconnects with um, with her daughter for the first time in many, many years, the one who is in the hospital, <laughs> she so cruelly calls her. Um, she, there's, there is in those moments, you know, um, a less talented actress could play this role without raising the sympathy that Bergman does, uh, because I don't think the script gives any sense of her repenting. And I think the performance does. She brings more to it than, than is on the page. Um, and it, it it's the lightest quiver of the corner of her eye that she does these kind of things with. Um, you know, it's it's the reaction to certain words that live on and lands with her. And it's 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 the way her body moves in response to these accusations that ultimately it's it's always the way that she's telling you that she knows it's true. Um, that I find phenomenal about this performance, yeah. and it's kind it's of interesting very... that it's like, go for there, Andrew. No, no, the, 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 it's it, it's very true. I think that um, you're quite right that she 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 adds kind of a lot of um, soul to somebody who who could be a monster in in some other hands. But I think, like as as regards like what why why Ingrid's would uh, play this because the 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 kind of idea that oh you must know um, uh, monsters in your life um, there there's there there I'll, I'll I'll give Ingmar credit too um, in terms of the way this is written because it's a kind of a consistent character in some ways makes sense. Um, even, even, even to the extent of like how her worldview is shaped, like something that she repeats, I think more than once, is this idea of like a talent for living, and she feels like um, this idea of talent kind of um, takes away her responsibility for how her daughter turns out. It's like, well, you know that that some people are just very good at living. The same way some people are very good at playing piano, and it's like maybe you're not meant to play the piano, maybe you're and 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 maybe you're not meant to live. It's not my fault that you don't have a great life. You just don't. You're. It's just you not where your talents lies. Yeah. And for and for the, it leaves Ava feeling that the only um, kind of respite from a life that she has no talent to live is the sweet release of death which where where there are no limits and um you know where 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 there's a kind of a release of um of feelings where did it where 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 she describes death as kind of liberated feelings that it be, be, because she can't do what life requires but but she feels like you know that must be kind of the answer she's not she's not going to kill herself um but but um yeah it's 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 interesting i guess 
Um, it is worth noting, actually, in terms of kind of um, in terms of talking about Ingrid Bergman and her legacy here, um, her daughters, uh, Pia Lindstrom, uh, Ingrid Rossellini and Isabella Rossellini, um, all nominated Autumn Sonata to be the centerpiece of a retrospective that was kind of held for her um, in 2015. And they oh. talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, <laughs> they've talked about how much of how much of that they see in the character as she's played on screen. Um, you know, if you have a gift, are you not meant to use it? Are you supposed to stay at home with your children and raise the family instead? You know, if you have a nanny, which I had growing up, we called her a governess. Mommy didn't find staying at home fascinating. This is uh, Pia Lindstrom speaking here. And I remember that she would say that in Italy, she would also have someone else to take care of the children. Isabella remembers that she and her sister had a wet nurse, nurse, which was very unusual, like something from centuries back. But in Italy, there was no milk for babies then. So Mama got us a wet nurse. And when she was, she was completely delighted by that. We stayed in touch with her wet nurse and sent her Christmas cards for years. Um, and again, like they talk about how much of that seems to have bled through into the performance. Um, I think it's a great performance, says Lindstrom. And at one point, you're past just being stunned by her physical beauty. You see much more. In her earlier films, her beauty was what you first saw first, and you went, ah, even when she played in the theatre later on. I think somebody said that she could have just read the phone book and everybody would be hushed just looking at her. But they found that this kind of was a performance that had more depth and more realism. And they saw a lot of their mother um, on screen as well, which is is quite harrowing um, when you think of it. Like to put that on screen, to put that side of yourself on there and to have it be recognizable to the people that you know. Because I think she she has she did talk herself about how it was Pia uh, in particular, who was the daughter that she abandoned. Uh, when Not abandoned, that's unfair. The daughter that she departed from when she ran off with uh, Rosalini and went to live in Italy and had a child out of wedding lock with him it was pia that was left behind and she's talked about how that's something that she felt very guilty about and very responsible for um and it's kind of it is it's a very brave thing to to put that on screen and to do that as your swan song to know that there's a decent chance that this will be the full stop this will be when you pass away this will be the movie that people talk about this will be the end of your career um it's it's a harrowingly brave thing to have done i think i also like the irony that we're talking about a character who might be disappointed that the daughter didn't go on to live the life that perhaps she might have liked uh whereas in real life the daughter that she did have uh from that uh from that affair isabella rossellini has gone on to be an acclaimed actress in her own right and looks just like her mother purely so Uh, actually do we want to sing talk about liv ullman uh for a moment as well yeah, like we focus a lot on Berkman because, you know, it is kind of her show in a way, being her swan song. But Ullman, it, it'd be kind of easy to overlook Ullman in the context of Bergman because she's in so many of them. Of course, she was his uh, partner for a number of years. In fact, they had a daughter together who is in the film. She plays Lynn, young Lynn Ava Ullman, in Flashbacks. Yeah. That's right. So um, she's, she's marvellous here. And she kind of has to be to go up against this performance of Bergman's. Like she has to, she has to portray somebody who is sufficiently browbeaten and frustrated after all this time to elicit these reactions. And she's a character who's gone through a lot of grief in her life and a lot of loss. Um, and Ullman plays it beautifully. It's it's not astronic. It's it's very matter of fact, which is which is probably what makes it more affecting. Um, when the confrontations come, they rarely go above a certain height, um, which is 
which is fine because then you know that allows you to focus on the truthfulness of the emotions and the situations that led to this. Um, they play off each other marvelously, absolutely marvelously. Um, it is worth noting actually that Ullman herself has kind of written about her own relationship with her daughter with Lynn and she said uh, the year before she appeared in the movie she said success in one's profession and trying to write a book do not compensate for domestic shortcutting, uh, short, uh, shortcomings as obvious as mine um, which again is kind of interesting that that ended up being put on screen it's worth noting that she um, and Bergman had actually separated um, a couple of years before this as well um, so they they weren't together when this happened but she's talked about how and again to bring it back to that theme that we talked about there about women and about like the expectations placed on women Ullman has talked about how because she didn't marrying Mar Bergman because the daughter that she had Lynn was outside of marriage she would actually have priests appearing on Swedish TV uh, condemning her and telling her that she was setting a bad example and that she needed to repent. She spent three years trying to find a priest that would actually baptize her daughter, um, which was kind of, that was the level of kind of conservatism at work in Swedish society at the time. Um, not so just again, Swedish society. No, no, to be absolutely, know, no, yeah. no, no, to be absolutely clear, not just Swedish we're, society. We're, <laughs> we're probably one of the worst. Yes, yes, um, yes. We have no stones to cast here, but it, it's no, more just to no. make the point in the context of, because Andrew did allude to it there, this, this idea of kind of like being a movie about a woman trying to do what she wants to do and feeling guilty for it as well. And, you know, I think the movie, it, it's not as simple as that. It's much more complicated than that. And that's just one facet of it. But I do think it is a facet of it. Um, and actually, just finally, then I think we're kind of wrapping up. But something that Ronan said at the very start, I want to come back to, uh, which is this idea, because we talked a lot about this feeling like a chamber piece. And in fact, um, it has been adapted for stage as a play several times. And Ronan, carrying on our theme from uh, Time with Gypsies, you'll be thrilled to hear that Autumn Sonata has, in fact, been adapted as an opera as well for the stage. Uh, but I think that one of the great uh, things about it is that it, it is written in such a way that you can see it working on stage. And as Phil pointed out, you know, obviously you have the roots of Bergman on stage as well, but it doesn't feel particularly stagey in terms of how it looks and feels it's very consciously framed in such a way like a movie shots are very carefully put together it uses close-ups there are sequences where it positions the camera so that like eric's photo is on the left hand side of the frame um and sort of charlotte's on the on the right hand side and so the two of them are there together so you get the importance of what's happening it's used to reaction shots it's a very well directed it's a movie it's, it's a film it's very cinematic in its storytelling so i was wondering ronan if you kind of had some thoughts along that line as well in terms of of kind of like how it is or is not theatrical yeah i think there you can see a lot of influence from bergman's experience of of directing plays for the stage um but it is it's, it's exactly as you say it transcends things um especially i'm thinking of there there are many um sequences usually especially the the flashback sequences you have that are directed in a very stagey manner it's as if you're sitting in a theatrical audience because that's how memory kind of works isn't it it's a it's a play playing up before you so we're seeing the way it works for those um characters but there's also um uh characters directly addressing the camera which um, you you can't quite get in a theater. You know, you can you can't speak directly to every member of the audience looking them dead in the eyes. That's a, a common thing that runs through Bergman's films. Um, you know, it's it, I think it's 
profoundly well done in Winter Light, particularly the, the sequence of reading a letter directly to the camera. Um, and it's a way of putting us in a character's headspace as they're... <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, I mean, actually, to bring it back to what you said, yeah, the, the flashback sequences, like the sequences where she's remembering Leonardo visiting, for example, or the sequences where she remembers going in to visit her mother, they are all very stagey. The camera is very much like looking at a widescreen presentation of actors in the distance. And I think that's quite striking. And then you have the contrast between the intimacy of what's actually happening um on screen but i think that about kind of wraps it up unless there's anything else we want to talk about anything that we haven't discussed already with regards to to autumn sonata i want to mention a kind of a recurring idea which i really like um of something being played uh badly but beautifully um and the we kind of get it when Ava is playing her interpretation of of um, uh, Chopin. Chopin, yeah. And then we 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 have it later when Leonardo is 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 kind of kind of playing the cello. <laughs> Except for the life of me, I couldn't tell like what's so wrong with it. But um, but I I do like. There's a that. reason why you're not playing to three thousand people in Los Angeles, Andrew. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But like. I like those kinds of um, performances that aren't kind of um, technically perfect, like like um, like our podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, um, it's a bit like uh, where I remember we were talking about um, Abadeus way back when. Um, it's one. It, it's one thing to learn how to play piano for uh, the screen. It's another thing to learn how to play piano badly. It's a, it's a skill in and of itself. The thing is, the, uh, the performance that Ullman's character gives, it's, it's passable to the untrained ear. It's, the reactions are all filtered through Charlotte, though, and you can visibly see her discomfort. It's, it, uh, again, Bergman is bringing a lot to it, just sl- the hints of mm, almost being pained listening to it even though to for all extensive purposes it's fine but I, but i but i think she she genuinely does find it beautiful i don't think even though even though ava kind of accuses her over and over again of insincerity i f- i get the sense from her that she, that she generally does love that performance i feel um, like i feel like it, she wants to love that performance she wishes she'd loved it more but yeah, I, I think there's it's a tension, a, definitely. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, interesting. It's, it's another example where she she maybe can't look past the flaws. Yeah. She's just incapable of doing that. Exactly. It's not how I would have played it. Therefore, it's not the way it should be played. <laughs> Precisely. Um, a trivia point there. Uh, whenever uh, Bergman, Ingrid Bergman, is depicted playing the piano, it's not her. It's a uh, pianist, uh, Cabellarite, who was actually another ex-wife of uh, Ingmar Bergman. It's just um, ex-wives, kind of. <laughs> and, and who says just, nepotism just, doesn't work? The place uh, places just seems to be full of them. It's I, like um, I have a list of ex-wives and lovers. See how many of them you can get. Lad. <laughs> To be fair, I do kind of like admire the fact that apparently his, his marriage has ended on good or his relationships ended up on good enough terms that it's like, yes, That's I will good. happily creatively collaborate with you. Considering um, how fraught relationships are in his films, it is remarkable. <laughs> and and particularly given the reputation that directors have for being unworkable, he, the fact he that he probably like, sets low expectations. So. <laughs> he's, he's like, join me on this pointless journey towards uh, desperation and, and death yeah, eventually. And death. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I will say. 
actually, I will single that out, actually, now that I'm glad Andrew mentioned it. That sequence is probably my favorite moment in the film, the close-up on um, Ingrid Bergman's face as the piece is being played, and you can see her doing that. And there's all that level of nuance in her performance, where it's like, I'm trying to like it, it's impressive that she's trying to impress me, but it's also not good. Um, how do I communicate this to her? I want to like this, but I don't. That sort of stuff, I really, really love. Like, again, I, there's so much going on there, and it's handled so, so brilliantly. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already? Anything jumping out at people? Um, notes. Oh, no. yeah, I had notes. Okay. All right. Well, then, well, then I will. Uh, well, then I will. You know, I open by asking Andrew and Ronan what they thought Autumn Sonata was about for them, and I feel like we can close by going to a foreign correspondent and Pedro Amadover's summary of it in high heels. Did you see Autumn Sonata? Asked one of the characters. It's about a great pianist and her mediocre daughter. Um, all right then. Only Pedro could. Uh, so uh, bitchy. <laughs> <laughs> it's Amadovar, of course. <laughs> all right then. Um, so before we wrap up, we do is we ask our guests to recommend something, something you're enjoying. It could be something related to this movie. It could be something unrelated entirely. Just something that you think listeners might enjoy. So to give Phil and Ronan a chance to think about this, I'm going to ask Andrew, what are you enjoying at the moment? Um, I'll I'll recommend a um, a movie, a piece of music, a, a composer, and a book. So movie, um, Interstellar, um, because it made me cry like this, and because it's about a parent's kind of neglect of their child, and 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 the the attempt to kind of um, compensate for that. Um, and both metatextually and actually like it's, exactly. it's also much yeah, like Autumn yeah. Sonata there's a sense the director is working through his own issues in it exactly as well. yeah yeah and and that it really kind of yeah because Nolan has a reputation for kind of like being an unfeeling director um, and I don't know if I got it on the first kind of watch um, but I, I, I think if 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 I like I'm glad I'm not on Twitter because I can say, watch it again and not fear that people are going to say, you told me to watch it again and it still sucks. Um, so yeah, go ahead and watch it again. I promise the it won't suck. And, and, it's, it's, and yeah. it is shorter than at least two of Ingrar, Ingrar Bergman's films. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's... Oh, but and the, the music, by the way, is beautiful. But the yeah. music uh, that that I'm not uh, going to the music that I'm going to recommend isn't Hans Zimmer. It's um, this uh, uh, Chopin is played here, one of his preludes. But um, check out his other preludes. I, I think my my favorite, uh, maybe it's a bit of an obvious one, but the 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 the, the raindrops and um, prelude is a beautiful piece of music and it really kind of can't fail to to get me and hit me like i could listen to it all day just over and over again uh, raindrops would keep falling on your head thanks darren (laughs) (laughs) i'll let you go it, it, um, in in terms of a composer, I'd say Clara Schumann. She was a um, a hus- hus- husband to um, in 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 some kind of histories of music, but the better known Robert Schumann, who was judged for not being a um, a good wife um, to him quite unfairly. And the 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 book that I recommend 
is um oh and by the way I, I did, like I, personally i feel like she 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 she's she's the greatest art she's the greater artist of the two no shade on robert schumann as the kids say um, i guess the schumann's on the other foot eh brilliant <laughs> i love this <laughs> and, and, and the the book i'd recommend um which has a, cl- a chapter on clara schumann is more than a muse by uh, katie mccabe Oh. Um, friend of the which 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 yeah. um which deals which deals with um women who were kind of um i suppose overlooked i guess, in uh, or overshadowed in in these creative um uh, uh partnerships so it goes goes through some some women you'll have heard of some women you won't uh and it's well worth a read so check it out yeah and you've recommended it before. I'm actually ashamed to say that it's been on my to read this for a while, so I will hopefully get around to it, actually. I'm quite looking forward to it. And you mentioned Chopin as well, actually. It's worth singling out that uh, Chopin is one of Bergman's favourite composers. And when Bergman was asked why he keeps me- making depressing chamber pieces fo- focusing on sad married people, um, he responds by telling a story, responded by telling a story, and that story is Chopin. And Chopin was approached after a concert by an old woman who said, Mr. Chopin, you write these beautiful preludes. They're so fantastic and wonderful. But have you not thought about writing an operetta or composing a piece or kind of writing a a symphony? And Chopin responds, my kingdom is a small one, but I am the king of it. That apparently is why Bergman specializes in doing small chamber piece family dramas. All right, then. And Phil, what would you recommend for people? Uh, oh, after Andrew's shopping list. Um, sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, I guess Andrew will be straight for the shopping board, eh? Shopping board. Yeah, that is great. <laughs> the, the, I, I, w- I will, I will limit myself to one from now on. Just, no, just. No, 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 I'm impressed. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I admire <laughs> the breadth of your. Uh, of your cultural reference. Uh, Look, you were giving Phil and Ronan a chance to compose themselves. <laughs> I, I didn't mean it as a criticism. Indeed. I didn't mean it as that. Um, well, let me think. I've got two Sometimes things. I struggle for one, by the way. Way, way to throw the book at him there, Phil. Because <laughs> the book was the last thing you recommend. Oh, anyway, sorry. Just go ahead. I'll recommend two things. A book I'm reading at the moment. I'm reading, uh, apropos of nothing, uh, Woody Allen's autobiography. I dare you. I bloody dare you. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, and I suppose related to uh, Autumn Sonata, is a film, um, another one that deals with painful revelations between parents and children, and also of Scandinavian extraction. Uh, Festen, The Celebration, Thomas Winterberg's 1998 uh, film, the first dogma film, and it is pretty much as uncomfortable as you may have heard. It's a former 200, uh, top 250 entry. And uh, well worth a look. Just uh, be prepared to gnaw your knuckles in discomfort. Have you seen another round yet? I haven't. And I'm dying to because I like Winterberg okay. and uh, Mads Mikkelsen. Mikkelsen. Yeah. Just, uh, who doesn't love Mads Mikkelsen? I mean, uh, I'm not a big fan. Would of you Anna- say you're Mads about it? I, like, I'm not a big fan of Hannibal the TV series, but... No, um, it's a bad show. It's, yeah, it's not what? really good. It's not really, is it? It's style over no, substance. No, it is. But that's, it is. But that, that said, is right. But that said, to me, wow, he's a definitive okay. Hannibal Lecter. Um, oh, he's great. He's fantastic. And I'm dying to watch another round. Listeners yeah. can't see me, but I'm frantically scribbling something down on my notepad of recommendations. Ronan, <laughs> what would you like to recommend? 
Um, so I have been uh, getting to grips with a little bit of post-war Japanese films lately. Um, this was spurred by a very good book of short stories I read that I'll also recommend called The Laws of Evening by Mary Ukeri Waters. Um, just really, really good at capturing the, the generational change in Japan after the war. Um, the, and just it, it, it's so evocative um, at creating that world that I decided it was a, a time and a place I wanted to learn more about. So I went seeing what kind of films were available. And luckily, the Criterion Collection was is available in this country to certain techniques, <laughs> shall we say. Um, they, yes, uh, Andrew. <laughs> I dived into some of the, uh, the Japanese films of the period they have and came across Mourning for the Asone Family by... Uh, Keisuke Kinoshita. Um, it is a very, very good film, all about a family that starts to fall apart in the latter wars of the Second World War. There's a lot of well-constructed parallels with society in this family. Um, people getting arrested for sedition, people getting shipped off to the war. Um, and I, I, I struck gold with it, really. It was exactly the kind of film I like. And I thought, oh, I really hope there are more films by this director on Criterion. And there are 45 <laughs> so I've I've been losing myself just diving into them. They're uh, going back to what we were saying about running times earlier. A huge proportion of them are under eighty minutes, so it's it's just ideal at the end of a long day to throw on a seventy-five minute film from this guy. They're uh, wonderful. What's the name of the director again? Uh, Kaiseku. Yeah, no, I can't pronounce that. Okay, sorry, apologies. <laughs> Kinoshita um, is the surname. Kinoshita, perfect. Um, and was this part of the Criterion's Japanese noir collection? Uh, no, these weren't the Noras. I know he, okay. he did get the disc treatment in the Eclipse series some time ago, okay. um, and they they seem to have uploaded a huge proportion to the to the website. Sorry, lost you again there, but you're back. Are you back? I'm here. Okay, cool. Um, Sorry, Ron. Right. <laughs> sorry, Ronan, sorry about that. If, if um, it seems like we're kind of underwhelmed by things you say, we're just, it's just because we can't hear you. <laughs> sorry. Tough room, tough room. Um, Damn it, guys. But considering that Ronan has been recording this the whole time, Darren, oh, yeah, no, this could be yeah. an interesting edit at the end. Oh, no, it'll be, it'll be fine. We'll figure it out. We'll make it work. Um, but no, and in terms of recommendations for myself, first of all, I would recommend Hannibal, which is a great TV show, which has both style and substance thank you very much um it's okay phil i'm gonna just edit out anything that you guys say um, but um also Darren, in terms of Darren's frozen yeah it's just sort of jammed on screen there in terms of recommendations we'll never uh, in get terms to of hear what he recommends <laughs> yeah. um i'm actually quite enjoying um the Criterion Channel, if you can get access to it in Ireland, or if you're in the States, um, a subscription is well worth it. It contains a wealth of kind of like all sorts of films from all over the world, including uh, Mask of the Red Death, which I was thrilled to hear. Um, Roger Corman was apparently a lifelong friend of Ingmar Bergman. In fact, actually helped distribute several of his films um, in the US. I think he was responsible for turning Cries and Whispers into an unlikely drive-in success story. Um, and obviously he heavily emulated uh, The Seventh Seal uh, in Mask of the Red Death, starring Vincent Price, which is the last in his line of Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, or penultimate in the line of Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, and is well worth seeking out if you haven't seen it already. Um, and also just HBO Max as well, because I got a subscription for it, and it contains all of the Looney Tune cartoons. Sure, it also contains Warner Brothers' entire film library. It also contains Turner Classic Movies. It contains everything in HBO. It contains The Sopranos, The Wires, but primarily it contains every Looney Tune that was ever released. Does that include Duck Amok? 
It does. It does include duck and muck. All, and I, all I can say to that is thanks for the sour persimmons, cousin. I saw the best Daffy Duck the other day because uh, um, Amazon have these kind of collections, but they're weird because they're not just Looney Tunes. They're also kind of like, um, you know, Popeye and stuff. And um, and and some of them some of them are good and some of them are not. <laughs> <laughs> and and then the final thing I would recommend I'm quite enjoying at the moment um, is uh, the Great, which is on uh, film Channel Four at the moment in the UK. It was on Hulu in the States. Uh, it's from the writer of The Favorite, which I think both Phil and Ronan quite enjoyed. Um, I know it. that prospective guest uh, Jay Coyle did not enjoy it but it's okay because he's not here uh, but the writer Tony McNamara has written a biography of Catherine the Great starring Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt um, I'm not entirely sure how it will last over 10 episodes but I've watched the first couple and they're fantastic so I recommend those alright then wrapping up then um, so if people are looking for a bit more Phil online where can we find you are you available anywhere nope not even on Letterboxd you can follow me there if you like, but it make very little difference to me. All right, then. Try and match that positive energy. Uh, Ronan, where can we find you online? <laughs> <laughs> he frozen again. He frozen again. I, I have. <laughs> Sorry. My internet seems to have gone haywire. That was perfect. <laughs> All right, so Ronan, where can we find you online? Matching Phil's energy and enthusiasm. All right, I'm on Letterboxd. <laughs> Philip Bagnell, B-A-G-N-A-L-L. Are you happy now? <laughs> Thrilled. <laughs> I'm happy if you are. I'm happy if you're happy. Uh, yeah, catch me Twitter, Letterboxd, at Baronel. Um, I feel like listeners should, won't appreciate because this isn't a visual medium, but yes, Phil is doing his best impression of Burgess Meredith from the 1960s Batman series. Um, he's He found a cigarette holder in a drawer and has just started smoking it. Um, so we actually have inappropriate smoking on the 250 podcast. This That's fantastic. Me immense pleasure, I won't lie. <laughs> All right, then. We'll let listeners imagine what that means for themselves. Um, you can follow the podcast at At The 250. You can find us online on Stitcher and SoundCloud, wherever good podcasts are not sold. We'll be back next week, where we have the wonderful Jess Dunn, the fantastic Alex Towers, will be joining us to talk about Steven Spielberg's 1993 classic, Jurassic Park. Take it easy, guys. We'll be back Excited. next week. Bye. Thanks so much, Cheers. guys. Bye. Thank you so much, guys. Really enjoyed that.